Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to join me in Genesis chapter 27. Be reading Genesis 27 through the end of chapter 28. So Genesis chapter 27, beginning in verse 46, and we'll read to Genesis 28, 22. Genesis 27, 46, the word of the Lord says, Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your, father's, your mother's father, and take as your wife from, one, from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings, and that God, that God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that he had blessed him as he directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angel... And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land of which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. And Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and I will, and I will give... I'm sorry, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I have come again to my father's house in peace, and the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house, and all that you give me I will give a full tent to you. Thank you, Pastor Kevin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we do have to come and to gather together and to think about the scriptures that you have uh, given to us, Lord, we know that you are a good God who has not left us into in the dark as to the, the things that do please you, Lord. We know that you have revealed yourself in your word, 
and that your word uh, lets us know your will and how to conduct ourselves and how to conduct our affairs in the world. And so we pray that you help us to be attentive, uh, to learn the right lessons from your word, Lord, and to be diligent to apply all that we hear. In your son's name I pray. Amen. When we come to this section of scripture, in many ways, one of the things that we've been trying to emphasize as we've been going through the book of Genesis in general is that if you want to know uh, one of the main themes that is going to run throughout the narrative, uh, it, this theme runs through the narrative so far, uh, particularly it starts with the story of Abraham and it's going to be the main feature of the narratives that's, that are to follow. That's going to be the Abrahamic, Abrahamic covenant. When you think about the Abrahamic covenant, uh, there is going to be repetition of the Abrahamic covenant that is uh, going forth throughout the rest of the book, and you ought to be mindful of that, and you ought to aware, be aware of that. And when we get to this particular section of Scripture, because it is really about marriage and about uh, matters related to spouse finding, uh, we're going to be talking about this passage from the perspective of what it has to say about how to find a spouse, because that is right there and right on the page in general. But then we're going to try to think through how does that connect with the Abrahamic covenant. And if you want to think about this passage in general, I'll just give you a shortcut to some of the things that I'm going to be saying as we go forward. But as you think about this passage, you ought to think about it in the Christian perspective, too. And when, when the Old Testament talks about the, uh, the Abrahamic covenant, uh, God says to Abraham, he calls him out of the Arab Chaldeans, he says, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to multiply you, I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to give you a land, uh, and you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. That, that's the Old Testament equivalent of the Great Commission in the New Testament. So if you want to know what is the, God's plan under the Old Covenant, what's plan is to make a people for his own possession, and he's going to use them to be a light to the nations. And so the Abrahamic Covenant really is the equivalent to the New Testament Great Commission. And, and when you think about some of the instructions that are going to be found even within this passage, they, they really do sound very eerily similar to what you're going to find in the New Testament too. So you think about the main uh, prescription that we're given as to spouse finding in the New Testament. What is it? It's marry whom you will, but marry in the Lord. Well, there, in this passage, we've already noticed that uh, Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. And what was the instructions that he's given at that point? Well, don't take a wife from the, the nations, from the Canaanites, uh, but then go to my family, to my father's house, and find one there. Uh, Isaac is going to give the same sort of instruction to Jacob. And, and there, there are parallels between these things. There are differences, and we're going to try to talk through the, some of those things. But I just want to set, your mind, uh, set in your mind the context and, and help you to see that uh, a lot of what you're going to find here really has a lot of parallel to what you're going to find in the New Testament. We're going to talk about it in that kind of light because that's where we're at now uh, just in terms of some personal history for me before I got married I, I know that I had a desire to be uh, married maybe an abnormally strong desire to be married honestly very very early in my life uh, it was the kind of thing that I thought about a lot uh, at a very very young age and and I would ask people for advice on how to pick a spouse. I would ask people marriage advice. It would be the kind of thing that I, I mean, I probably did that for a decade. I would talk to people and try to ask people uh, everything I could find out about uh, this subject. And I read books. Uh, I mean, I read, you know, much of that was before I became a Christian. But then I, I read every book I could find on the subject. Most of the early books I read on the subject were psychological uh, books or pop psychology kind of books. And they, and they all follow the same 
uh, predictable uh, happiness formula, need-based formula. Um, you know, the advice given there is, is, is the kind of thing that you can summarize pretty easy. Just, you know, find someone with common interest. Uh, find someone with a compatible personality. Uh, it's going to be really hard. Make sure you make a wise choice and, and, and everything else. And so I think there's different types of advice that I was given that I'm going to try to categorize in different categories and, and talk about how that relates to this passage uh, too. So uh, trust me, it, it'll make sense. But most, most of the advice I, I got was fear-based advice. And for a person who wants to get married, when, when you get a lot of fear-based advice, it can be a source of frustration for you because, you know, if, if after talking to person after person after person, uh, trying to find out how to do this well, what makes for a good marriage, how do you find a, a spouse, uh, if, if after talking to person after person after person after person, and it seems like everyone you're talking to has a poor marriage, <laughs> a marriage that they don't want to commend to you, uh, and then you look at them and you say the primary advice they give you is uh, something along the lines of, be very careful. Take your time. Don't rush into the things. Uh, marriage is very, very hard. I mean, if that's the kind of stuff that that's all you hear, it can be somewhat of a frustration. And then it can be a frustration if you're theologically minded and you're living in a world that is um, in delayed marriages. So, I mean, you look around the culture you live in and you see that like marriage rates are on the rise. It used to be that I mean, my parents, when they got married, they got married at in their early 20s. And that wasn't all that uncommon uh, as far as that goes. I mean, they were they were pushing it a little bit, but then, I mean, really now nowadays the, the age of the first marriages are up in the late twenties, uh, and, and so when you live in that kind of society and you say, hey, that isn't necessarily a wise situation to take a bunch of people who are full full of hormones and want to express them and make them wait, you know. 15 years before they get married, that's a recipe for disaster. And you look around the world and you say, yeah, that's exactly what I see all around me. Uh, one of the things you realize, and then you're talking to people and everyone is just fear, you know, fear, 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 patience, 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 delay, delay, delay. You might look at that and you say, well, um, I don't know how helpful that all is <laughs> as far as that goes. Uh, so most of it, most of what I got was fear-based, but then, uh, you know, there, the remainder, I mean, the vast majority of the remainder was just exclusively practical advice. And this is maybe the kind of advice that we're tempted to give at times because, uh, you know, marriage does involve a lot of practical realities. And so what do you think you hear? Finances, talks about, fin never-ending talks about finances, how are you going to provide, how are you going to, you know, uh, secure a financial future forever. Uh, there's going to be a lot of talk about uh, just uh, make, if, if you're, it, it, a lot of it's purely just secular. Make sure that you're totally head over heels in love with this person. In other words, whatever that means, I think that means uh, you're so in, emotionally invested in this person that you can't see straight. That's, that seems to be great advice. Uh, because, but then that's typically followed with more fear-based advice because you know, you give, that, give it a few years and then everything will fall apart and then you'll get to figure out what the whole thing is made of anyways. But then at least if you start with someone you really like, maybe it'll last towards the end and, and everything else. But most of it's kind of exclusively practical related to finances and uh, things along those lines and, and everything else. But then you know there, there can be a reaction to that sort of advice uh, with what you know many... I did go to seminary, and, and I was around a lot of people who 
were on the receiving end of exclusively fear-based advice and then the exclusively practical advice. And, 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 I, and I did go to seminary, and, the, and that seminary is a lot of guys who realized that um, most church, they want to be pastors, and most churches want you to be married to be a pastor. And so I'm around a lot of spiritually-minded people who have really good theology, who love God, uh, who love his word, and they're looking at all that, you know, fear-based advice, exclusively practical advice. And, and in, you know, a lot of them just came to an exclusively sort of spiritual perspective of, of spouse finding, too. So you, you basically just have a doctrinal checklist. Uh, you make sure they're not a believer, and you, go, you get to it. And, and part of that, you know, <laughs> is related to you have guys like Al Mohler and his checklist on how to find his spouses is, uh, you know, if you're, to the guys, are they a female have they always been a female? Because you have to ask that nowadays. <laughs> Are they a Christian? <laughs> All right, uh, go. <laughs> you know, and so I think there's something to be said about that in general. But then um, uh, the, the reality was I, 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 I looked at my friends, my doctrinally strong friends, who were jumping into some very quick marriages at, at times. And, and one of the things I realized is that, that a lot of them had really bad marriages really quick. And it was very hard. And, and you, you know, I look at that and I, and, you know, I talk to my counseling teachers and one of the things that my counseling teachers are saying over and over and over again is most of the counseling they're getting from the students is, um, just there's really tough, bad marriages that maybe weren't well conceived and maybe there's a, a necessary corrective on the other end with all the stuff that, w- that I just talked about that was rejected. And, and, and the reality is that. When you think about a passage like this, it really does start with some sober words from Rebecca that are trying to basically say poor marriage choices can have a dramatic effect on a family. So Rebecca says, Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, uh, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Now, I think when you read that, uh, you read it the first time. I think there's a temptation there to think, well, Rebecca is being kind of like Rachel, right? Give me children lest I die. She's being a little bit dramatic. Yeah, okay, maybe things are difficult, but aren't you being a little bit dramatic? And aren't you being uh, a little bit over the top? And, you know, really, you know, uh, you you, you loathe your life because of, you know, the marriage choice of your other son and and if and if Jacob does the same thing you're really going to load their life and and you're going to say what good is your life to, uh, to me and I mean what about thanksgiving for all the things that the Lord has done and what about persevering through difficult situations and 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 you know what about um, counting it all joy when you're falling into various trials and what what about rejoicing and being exceeding and glad for great is your reward in heaven when you're persecuted and what about all that you know don't you see all that and and I would say I, there's probably a little bit of a corrective there to her in that regard. Uh, but then the, the problem is that the context of the passage itself seems to, uh, the, the narrator here, uh, Moses, who is speaking for God, seems to agree with her. Okay, so one of the things you realize is uh, the context says Genesis 26, 34 through 35, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimoth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And what does it say? It says, they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Now, uh, Moses seems to say, no, there's something to what she's saying. Uh, if, 
poor marriage choices can have a really negative effect on a family. And, and you, you have to realize it's not just Moses who says this. Um, think about the book of Proverbs. Now, um, the book of Proverbs says repeatedly that it's better to live in a corner of a housetop than a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Uh, repeatedly. So what is the book of Proverbs doing? What, what, do you, what do you have happening in the book of Proverbs? So one of the things, if you want to understand what the book of Proverbs actually is, uh, one of the things the book of Proverbs is doing is it's telling a young man how to look for a spouse. And so one of the reasons why you have this, uh, you know, the danger of a contentious wife repeated over and over and over again, and maybe not the same thing with uh, a man, is because it's written to a young man to tell him how to figure out how to pick a good spouse in general. That's one of the primary purposes. And I, and I think one of the things that we have to say is the goal of Christian life is certainly not happiness. I mean, happiness isn't the goal of the Christian life. And I look back at all the advice I got, and it's all about personal happiness and fulfillment and everything else. Now, certainly the goal of the Christian life is not about happiness but holiness. However, that does not uh, mean that the Christian life um, should not involve substantial happiness and that marriage should be a profound source of joy and blessing for two believers who are actively fighting sin in their life and walking in grace. And so when you think about the purpose of marriage, you realize that, hey, yeah, no, happiness isn't the goal, but, you know, God has designed marriage to be a, a fundamental source of happiness for both a couple and their family and everything else. It ought to be a, an occasion for rejoicing and celebration. That's why you have wedding feasts and everything else. I mean, it ought to be a source of happiness for two uh, Christians who are actively fighting the sin in their life and walking in, in their grace. And, and I think when, when you think at this story, you, one of the things you realize is the fact that the Canaanite wives made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. I don't think that that is a wholesale indictment on the character or contentment of Isaac and Rebekah. I think it's just a statement that acknowledges that sin can be very grievous in its effect. And the Bible repeatedly warns against the damaging effects of certain character traits that are by no means exclusive to pagans. So plenty of people who have good theology have destructive relational traits that make living in a common dwelling place exceedingly difficult to enjoy. So I, I said Proverbs twenty one nine is better to live in a corner of a housetop to, than to a wife, uh, than to a house share with a quarrelsome wife. You notice this warning is repeated over and over and over again. Twenty twenty one nineteen is better to live in a desert land, better to live in a desert land, than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Proverbs twenty five twenty four is better to live in the corner of a housetop than a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Uh, Proverbs twenty seven fifteen through sixteen: A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's hand. And, and unless you think that being quarrelsome or argumentative or angry or uh, frustrated is a temptation that's exclusive to women, the Proverbs also says, "As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife." And so, one of the things to realize is that. Yes, marriage is not primarily about happiness, and yes, marriage is about holiness, and even with bad uh, marriage choices at times, there is no plan B. God knows what he's doing. He's going to uh, sanctify his, uh, his elect uh, individuals, and so those things are all true, but then the reality is there are um, specific character traits, there are character traits I saw in my friends who had great theology, there are specific character traits that... Uh, that are the kind of character traits that have a way of making life miserable for everyone around them. And, 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 and it's, it's just, the, the reality is, it's, it's not true that, you know, if, 
two people who are legitimate believers, you put them in a, in a roof together that everything's going to be okay. I mean, sometimes that God takes time to sanctify us uh, from the sins that characterize us. And I mean, I could think of example after example after example as it relates to, you know, these two Canaanite women's making uh, life exceedingly bitter for Isaac and Rebecca. I, I mean, I could think, I could tell you story after story after story of individuals who are in, uh, who are married to contentious people, and sometimes God takes 20, 30 years to get rid of it, you know? Sometimes it's really, really bad. It's really bad, and it gets better and better and better and better over time, uh, so much so that, you know, maybe there's not a blow-up every day like there was at first, but then, you know, 30 years later, there's a blow-up once every three years kind of thing. Uh, but w- whatever you want to say with all that, uh, the reality is they're... It's not fun, and, and, and there's a lot of things that you can't really see about individuals at first um, that really do come to light very quickly later on. And so one of the things you, you ought to realize is that there are traits like this that believers, since stubborn, and believers can have significant sins. I, you know, about a year ago, I counseled a former drug addict who came to know the Lord, and as I'm talking to him, I'm... I'm He's passionate about the Bible and he's passionate about truth. And I, and I look at him and I, and I think, I am looking at a legitimate believer. I am looking at a legitimate believer. So far as I can tell, I, I'm not an absolute judge or authority of these things. But his wife came to talk to me first. And you know what her problem was? What do you think? He's back to the drugs. He's back to the drugs. Now, was it every day that he's back to the drugs? No. What was his life before, like before Christ? Well, it was like drugs all the time without any check, without any breaks, without anything else. What is it after Christ? Well, when they have a fight every few months, what happens? He goes to the drugs, uh, repents of it, comes back. You know, what's happening? I, I don't know. Is he a believer? I don't know. But I, it, there's just a reality. The, the reality is that um, believers can have significant struggles at times that we may not be aware of that uh, can dramatically affect relationships in general. And we ought not to uh, downplay the importance of not just simply uh, marrying permissibility, uh, permissibly, but then to uh, think through uh, how to marry wisely. Now, when you think about that, uh, there's a warning that is given, I think, at the very outset that poor marriage choices can have a dramatic effects on a family uh, in general. And I think the specific anger there is you have to ornery and cranky women. I don't know if they're cranky with each other and they're taking it out on everyone else because they don't like being in a polygamous relationship. Who knows? Or if they're just, you know, it's them on the same side against everyone else because they're Canaanites and they have different customs and different practices and everything. I don't, I don't particularly know, but uh, there, there is a bit of a warning there that I think we ought not to just take Rebecca and turn her into an ungrateful, whiny complainer. Uh, you ought to realize that... Uh, there are plenty of people who suffer for years and years and years uh, under the damaging effects of sin, and those kind of things ought to be taken seriously. Now, what? Now, when you think about how the passage works, in response to this, what's the situation? So Esau has taken two Canaanite women to be his wife, and they're making life uh, exceedingly hard for Isaac and Rebekah. That's the, that's the context. Now, what has just happened last week? What did we learn about last week? What did Jacob do? Yep, he's, he stole the birthright. So him and Rebecca had a plan that they had devised to steal 
uh, the birthright that involved him doing uh, some method acting, apparently, is uh, what he did. And he uh, got some, uh, he put some animal skins on his arm and uh, deceived his father. His mother made him, uh, made some soup. And Jacob steals a blessing out of it. Now, how, how does Esau respond? Well, the text says, surely uh, Esau comforts himself concerning you, Jacob, by seeking to kill you, right? So when you think about what's actually happening there, the reality is that um, they, they're coming up with a plan to get uh, Jacob a wife for two reasons. One, Abrahamic covenant, right? And you all the families of the, uh, of the earth are going to be blessed. I'm going to make you into a great nation. If they're going to make you into a great nation, then somehow Isaac's going to have to get married. Uh, Isaac seems to be one of those guys who, uh, who fails to launch so to speak, uh, at this point in his life, he's 70 or 80 years old, and he hasn't uh, found a wife yet. And so there's that. Um, there, that seems to be, um, it, it, within the passage, he does seem, there does seem to be this dynamic where he's more the mama's boy. And then on the other end of things, uh, Pastor Kevin mentioned this, uh, mentioned this uh, about this a little bit, but you have uh, Jacob, who essentially him and Rebecca are close, and and have a good relationship, and then Isaac and Esau are really close. They have a good relationship, and there seems to be this favoritism kind of thing working out in there. Uh, but they, they come up with a plan to get him a wife at this point because, you know, the, the reality is Isaac's getting old. Jacob's just sitting here. He's not doing anything. we got, we got to get on with God's plan here. You need to get married. Um, if there's going to be, if uh, Abraham's descendants are going to be as numerous as stars uh, of the sky and the sand on the sea, you got to get on with it, man. But, but then also, Esau's very mad at him, and uh, you know, for for what he did, in the way that he did it, and they're concerned that he might take it out on Jacob as well. So, so one of the things that we're going to find is, I think, as we're looking through this, we're going to talk about the relationship between parental authority and spouse finding. So, the text says Genesis eight twenty eight one. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Badamaran, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take uh, as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of people. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padamaran to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. So let's, let's make some observation here. Uh, Isaac gives his son Jacob, who's anywhere between 70 and 80, as you, you think through the timetables that are at work there. He's anywhere between 70 and 80 at the time. Isaac gives uh, his son instructions on where to find a spouse that he expects him to follow. So he, it's, it's worded pretty strongly. Uh, he directed him. He blessed him and he directed him, you must not do this. Uh, and then he sends him off to go. Now, um, there, there really does seem to be in this passage a clear contrast between the ungodly line, Esau, uh, with the, uh, the ungodly line and the ungodly marriage choices uh, and the godly line uh, in the marriage choice. Says, which are going to be present within that uh, as well. And, and so there's, there's a contrast here. Uh, Esau seems to just kind of do his own thing. Uh, doesn't really follow the tradition established by Abraham not to take a wife from the Canaanites, which is made a big deal of in the text itself. Uh, uh, Esau just kind of does his own thing. He multiplies wives uh, 
of his own initiative very quickly. Uh, Jacob is given instructions by his father, specifically charged to go take a, a, a wife from a specific location. And one of the things that the passage says is Jacob obeys his father and mother in that. So a 70-year-old, 80-year-old man going to find his spouse, obeys his father and mother in that. Now, um, Isaac essentially gives Jacob the same instructions that Abraham gave his servant on Isaac's behalf. Take a wife from a near relative and not from the Israelites' future mortal enemies. Um, the, the reader knows who the Canaanites are, so you have to remember that these, this passage was written down later on when they're coming out of Egypt into the Promised Land, who, uh, which is filled with the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and everything else. And so when you see these cues, don't take a wife from the Canaanites, you know, the, the reality is... Um, they're forward-looking in a certain respect. So now, uh, Jacob uh, or Isaac essentially gives Jacob the same instructions Abraham gave his servant. And I mean, I think it's kind of a preclude to the New Testament instruction: marry whom you will, only marry in the Lord. Uh, you know, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. There's something like that going on. Don't take away from the pagans because it, it's it's a pretty it's it's kind of a parallel between don't. Be equally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, there's, there's every indication in this passage that if Jacob were to disregard his father's instruction, that he would demonstrate himself to be following after the pattern of the seed of the servant, serpent, which has been traced from Cain all the way to Esau. There's, um, in contrast to that, Jacob obeys father and mother. The text specifically says that, makes a big deal about that, and so we want to talk about that. Now, so the, the relationship between parental authority and spouse finding. What are we to think of parental authority and spouse finding? Well, you know, there's some variety in the Bible as it relates to this. I mean, when you think about um, the story we just read, uh, Abraham sends a servant to arrange a marriage for Isaac, so in that kind of situation, you have an arranged marriage where Abraham is picking wife for his uh, his servant, not even Abraham, his servant is picking wife for uh, his son Isaac. And it's, you know, the reality is it really is sight unseen in that kind of way. Uh, it actually happened to work out in that case. Uh, but then the reality is that's a little bit different than this one where um, uh, Isaac is sending Jacob to go find one himself. But then he gives some parameters. You're to look here and you're not to look here. So there, uh, there, there's a little bit of a difference there. And then you can look through the rest of the Bible and you can say that this seems to be done in a wide variety of ways uh, throughout the Bible. Now, I, I think um, if you're to make a careful statement that is seeking to summarize the relationship between parental authority and spouse finding, as far as I can tell, I would say at the very least, it, very, it seems very clear that God intends parents to be the primary source of wisdom for children and helping their children transition from a dependent role to an independent role, forming their own family units. I would say it, it, at the very least, the least that you would say, it seems very clear that God intends parents to be the primary source of wisdom for the children and helping their children transition from a ten, dependent role to an independent role, forming their own family units. That seems to be ideal in the way it's designed and and obviously the wisest thing in the world. Uh, and, and there's so many reasons why that's the case. I mean, the reality is in matters of the heart, we are absolutely insane, as we all ought to know. And if you don't know, then you're foolish. <laughs> so in matters of the heart, we're insane. I, I um, It's funny. Um, when I was thinking about finding a spouse, I, 
I didn't trust myself. So when I, when I thought about my own motives, my own, I didn't trust myself because I knew that, you know, when you're an individual who has a strong desire to be married, uh, one of the things in, in your center, you know, you're a sinner, when you're a sinner, one of the things you realize is the heart's deceitful and wicked above all things. And, and I often don't know what motivates me. I, I often don't know um, the thoughts and intents of my own heart. I, I, I can tell you what I think I'm trying to do at any given point in time, but oftentimes, you know, I may be uh, doing things uh, motivated for very different reasons than I realize. And then, when you know, if you're a young man and you see an attractive woman, you think to yourself, like, there's a, there are um, temptations to... Uh, disregard, you know, sanity at numerous points, uh, particularly if you really want to be married. And, and, and often, like for men, it's, it's more uh, visual related. But then for women, it's often, and these are not hard, fast rules. Women, it's often relational, relationally re- related. I mean, when you have an insecure girl who wants to get married really bad and desperately wants someone to love her, uh, one of the things that happens is some guy comes along and says that he, he likes her. And what do, you, what do you think she thinks? I mean, she... It's wonderful, right? And so, I mean, there's great temptations to just look at, uh, to not be objective as you think you're being. And I mean, I could just tell you story after story after story after story after story of friends of mine, uh, you know, around that time when we're getting married. It's like they would find a, a wife. I, they're the kind of guys that we talk about the Bible all the time and we talk about theology all the time and we talk about all this stuff. And, and they find a wife and then all of a sudden it's just like they're different. You know, we never see him again. Most of the time, we never saw him again. Um, you know, you look at the woman that they're attracted to, and it's just like, I don't know about her, you know, <laughs> as far as that goes. And, and they're di- then all of a sudden, they change. Like, everything about them just changes, you know. Like, these subtle convictions they have, and chunk them out the window. Uh, doesn't matter anymore, and it's just like, they're, they're in love, you know. And it's like, well, um, you know, looking at that, look that's that's just the way things work and, and if we think that we're somehow exempt from that we're insane i mean we uh everyone uh that's a common temptation for everyone no matter how logical and clear-headed and careful you're trying to be you ought not to trust yourself uh in those kind of issues uh in general because uh you know the reality is that we're sinners and and yeah absolutely we're motivated by self-interest and oftentimes we can overlook a whole lot to get what we want uh uh, really, really, really bad. And so it seems clear. What I'm saying is it seems clear that God intends parents to be the primary source of wisdom for their children and helping them transition from a dependent role to an independent role forming their own family units. Why does that make sense? Well, you have like uh, a married couple who has done, they, they've been married. They know what it's like to be married. They know the difficulties and struggles that come with being married. And not only that, but then like ideally they're spiritually mature people who have uh, seen God's faithfulness demonstrated over time for a lot longer than, than their children. And, and, and not only that, okay, they're, they're clear-headed, you know? Like your, 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 your son or daughter comes and they introduce to you the person that they're wanting to get married. And whatever happens with that, you have to understand that, like, the, the parents in that kind of situation, they're not thinking, like, they're not thinking emotionally in that way, right? I mean, like... So for the person who's going to get married, they, they, they get out of the marriage a spouse, what they want. Now, with the parents, it's like there's not that same kind of pressure that I desperately want this and I want to have it. And so when they look at things and they make observations, they're often a lot more neutral uh, by principle. And so when you think about uh, God's intention here, it really does seem clear that God intends parents to be the primary 
uh, source of wisdom for children and helping the children transition from a dependent role to an independent role. Now, uh, regardless of the spiritual state of an individual's parents, parents do have uh, wisdom that comes from life experience, which, if heeded, can generally save individuals from a lot of heartache. Uh, so I, I want to say that, too. So, I mean, it seems clear that God intends parents to be the primary source of wisdom in, in helping make a successful marriage choice. That seems to be way, the way he designed it. Now, whether it's an absolute... I, I don't think it's probably an absolute law that in every situation, in every single case, uh, you must do exactly what uh, your parents say. Uh, because, I mean, like the reality is some parents are so motivated by fear to the point where, you know, if you were... <laughs> um, the the, the uh, criteria that they would set forward that would... Uh, merit their approval in any individual given situation might be uh, wait for 10 years, uh, get to know them really good and make sure you go through every stage of life and then uh, go on and get married. And you might find that if that's the advice you get, um, uh, the, the reality is that uh, that would be unfaithful advice too. So there's that. Uh, but then, there, you know, I think there's plenty of parents who are motivated by crazy things too, to the point where it's just like, um, really, what they want for you is very different than what a Christian ought to want for you, uh, and and you know, particularly when you're dealing with uh, believing children who have unbelieving parents, it can get quite a messy at the time. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't seem clear that God intends parents to be the primary source of wisdom for their children, uh, regardless. And you ought to feel very unsettled and unsafe as if you're going to say, "My parents are." motivated poorly, you have to feel very unsettled and unsafe if you're in that posture, uh, unless you have spiritual authorities in your life who are, like, giving you every license to to conclude that that's totally unreasonable and everything else. If you're in that situation, I mean, if you're going to be the one who's saying, my parents are, are, are going to lead me into sin if I follow them in a marriage choice, if you're in that kind of situation, then one of the things that you need to realize is that... Um, it does help to have other people on the outside who agree with you, and so you're not just on your own as far as that goes. And, and, and the reality is, regardless of the spiritual state of individual parents, parents do have a lot of wisdom that comes from life experience. So what do you think? Uh, you think, let's say you're talking about a, just a purely pagan woman who um, wants you to get married to the president of the United States or something like that. <laughs> uh, and that's what they, they have hopes and dreams, uh, like a, a nice, successful doctor who has a lot of money. And just, you know, it's just as carnal as it gets. Uh, as far as that goes, um, um, one of the things to realize is that, you know, maybe if she was married to an angry guy her whole life, she might know how to tell you what one looks like pretty early, uh, and you might want to listen to her. And so regardless of the st- spiritual state of individual parents, like, let's say you're in the extreme situation where your parents are just completely pagan-minded and everything else. You can still learn things from them, and you can still uh, they can still be a form of safety for you, even if you don't do exactly what they say to the letter of law and you have other people in your life who are encouraging you to do that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just saying that there's, there's, a, there's still value in that. Um, you know, my family and I, we're theologically different, and one of the things I've tried to do over the years, I'll just say this, is just get as much advice as I could possibly get in order to honor my, my family. And so I'll try to look for ways to get advice uh, just so that I can 
make sure I'm not just a stubborn-minded person who just wants to do things my own way. Now, if an individual is looking for a reason, here, here's the third thing. If an individual is looking for a reason to completely disregard their parents' input and spouse-finding process, there's no shortage of reasons which could prove sufficient to justify a disrespectful posture. So if an individual is looking for a reason to completely disregard them, there's really no shortage of reasons you can find. Think about the story itself. So I want to walk through the story. Think about this. What if you're Jacob? What if you're Jacob? Like in the text, Jacob just goes with it. They t- uh, you know, uh, Isaac tells him where to find a spouse. What if you're Jacob and you don't really like being told where to look? Okay? How, how do you respond to your, your father and mother at that point? Well, so Esau gets to marry whomever he wants, and I have to marry who you tell me to marry. Right? I mean, that wasn't his, his stance, but uh, certainly, like, if, we, if you're in his situation, many of us would think that's entirely reasonable. Oh, what about this one? Oh, you're trying to be a spiritual authorities in my life now. You, dad, who spinelessly let mom thin for herself, claiming that she was your sister. You, dad, who ignored what God said to me about receiving the blessing and wanted to give it to Esau and said, now you want to talk about honoring the Lord. Now you want to talk about not marrying Canaanite women. Uh, you know, what if Jacob had a Canaanite lady he liked and thought was cute? Uh, he could say that sort of thing. Uh, and mom. Mom, the only reason you want me not to marry a Canaanite is because you just don't like Esau's wives. Now, if you if you say that in 2018, it's probably she doesn't like the Canaanites' wife, probably because she's racist. Uh, but uh, that's anachronistic to say. So, uh, but Mom, um, you don't want me to marry a Canaanite because you just don't like her wives. And what's the first thing you mention? It's not really the Abrahamic blessing, but you complain about all the discomfort and. Uh, that you are experiencing and all the difficulty that you're experiencing, and you ought to just get over yourself. Uh, but what do you do? You force Dad to tell me who am I allowed to marry? Why would I listen to either of you? You have a terrible, unhealthy marriage. I mean, don't they have a like a weird marriage at some points? I mean, it seems like uh, there's a deep conflict within this marriage to where uh, Rebecca, at a variety of points, is... Um, subversively plotting against her husband and then outright telling her husband what to do and he seems to go along with it and everything else. And so whatever you have here, this isn't a picture-perfect marriage. Um, Why would I listen to either of you? You have a terrible, unhealthy marriage. What sort of authority could you possibly be to me? Now, the problem with that is whatever's happening here, Isaac and Rebecca clearly have Jacob's best interest in mind, and the reality is that people are complicated, you know. Uh, The reality is that uh, it's hard to peg people as just... um, when you think about just people's perspectives related to issues like this, it's not the truth that, you know, even the, the worst person has something good to say about some of the subject. You, sometimes you just have to dig a little bit. You know, it's not true that it's just purely pagan or purely uh, from the mouth of God itself. You have to filter it out and sort it out. And so I, I think to parents what I would say is, what does the volume and frequency of your words say about what you care about for your children? Uh, the reality is, and this is so... Um, common, that it's sad and it's tragic. The reality is most parents that I know, uh, that I've observed in my life over the course of my life, they, 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 they seem to be so concerned with all the things that don't really matter all that much. Um, I mean, and I'm not saying they don't matter at all. I'm just saying that, that there seems to be with most of the parents I've witnessed related to this kind of topic, that there's just this pressure that uh, is put on children uh, to do things all wrong, and it feels all backwards, and it's just like, uh, you know, you, 
What do you hear about in your life? You've got to get good grades. You've got to get good grades so you can get a good job. And if you, if you don't get good grades, you won't get a good job. And if you don't get a good job, then you're going to have to struggle with money. And then, you know, it's just education, 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 um, uh, and, and everything else. And, and, and you know, it's, it's so common to be in that kind of situation and never hear anything about God. <laughs> right? Like, there's no pressure. You, you read your Bible today? <laughs> Uh, do you love the Lord today? What have you been learning about today? How have you been growing about today? Uh, the most important thing is that you know the Lord and that you serve him and that you honor him and that you, uh, uh, you seek to live a life that's well-pleasing to him. Uh, you know, with, with so many parents, it's just so, um, it's so much on the temporal and the physical and comfort and safety and everything else. And, and if you're in that situation, here's the point. I mean, if, if, that's, if you're, you're a kid and you're thinking about, I didn't get married, and that's all you hear from everyone around you. It's just success, safety, ease, comfort. What do you think you're going to do? You don't have anything to say to me, right? And in a certain sense, is that reasonable? Well, I understand. I mean, I don't know where you're taking me. All you want me to be is like living the American dream or whatever dream they have in other countries. Um, Who knows? Uh, but then uh, that's what you want from me. And whatever it is, it's clearly not scriptural priorities. And then if you're a child in that kind of situation, you're reading the Bible. The more and more you read the Bible, the more you see that this isn't matching that kind of emphasis. And so in the context of this passage, it's just like, is it all about comfort and safety and about conflict-free life and no problems and everything else? Or is it about the Abrahamic blessing and being a light to the nations? What is it? I don't know. And if I don't know, I don't know if I can trust you. That's the point. That's, that's the point. So to parents, I would say, what's the volume and frequency of your words say about what you care about for your children? And they'll pick up on it better than you realize. And, and if it's all the wrong stuff, and if God does actually change their heart, you might not be surprised if at some point you lose trust with them. That's the point. Uh, they may not trust anything you have to say, and, and there might be reasons why they don't trust everything that you have to say uh, that are not excusable, but at least understandable. Now, to children, I would say, look, yes, that's true. But then, you know, I'm saying children in that way because most, like, eight-year-olds aren't actively pursuing a spouse. But <laughs> so there's that. But um, I would say, yes, no, I agree with everything I just said. And I would also say that um, if you're in that kind of situation and you don't trust the advice that you're given, then I would tell you to uh, go out of your way to have uh, a spiritual authority in your life who uh, agrees with the assessment. And then I would say go out of your way to make sure that you can get whatever you can from that because that still is a source of protection and safety from you because even in that kind of situation where the motives are all wrong, you still are dealing with people who desperately love you and care about you and want what's best for you and, and know you better than anyone else does. And they've seen a lot. And in whatever you do, you don't want to disregard it. So that's true too. So I would say be very careful about just in a ipso facto kind of way dismissing parental concerns. Try to understand and embrace what you can find there that's good and right and reasonable. Uh, struggle with it. Uh, labor with it. Uh, go out of your way to, to, to uh, be sympathetic to what you're hearing as much as you possibly can. Because if you don't, then, and if you're just all on your own, you've, you've, um, you've lost all form of God-ordained safety in your life. And you might... Uh, face the consequences of your choices, and they could be, they could be the kind of consequences of your choices that uh, Rebecca is saying too. You know, so uh, the the kind that this family experienced too. So now uh, there is that to be said about that, and we could go on and on and on about um, these things in general. 
but then, you know, the, the reality is that, like, all, like most Christian families, there's a mixed bag here. And uh, Abraham, or Isaac, really does seem to be concerned that um, Jacob fulfill the great, uh, the great commission of the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant, and go find himself a wife and to have offspring and to be a part of God's plan for the world. And what is God's plan for the world? Well, if you want to summarize God's plan for the world in two corporate commands, one is going to be be fruitful and multiply, so fill it up, people. That's part of it. Then the other part of God's plan is fill it up with people who believe the good news. So those are some things that we can say about that um, without belaboring some of those points. Now, what are some lessons to learn from the tragic life of Esau? Now, Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob, sent him away to Padam Aram to take a wife from there. And as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and gone to Padam Aram. Uh, when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wife he had, uh, Mahaloth, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. So when you, you think about the life of Esau, what we're at in this point in the story is that there is a, a transition that's happening at this point of the story to where this is kind of the climax of Esau's involvement in the story, in the narrative. And it really, uh, from here on out, you're going to be Jacob all the way, so to speak. And there's going to be a brief, Jacob's going to come back and encounter Esau again. But the main thrust and the focus of the story is going to be from this point on, Jacob. And so this is kind of the climax, if, as, it, as it were, of Esau's involvement. And one of the things that you ought to realize about this is, uh, it, th- because it's kind of a climax at, at this point, it's helpful to look back and try to learn some lessons from the tragic life of Esau. When, when you think about the life of Esau, it really, if you're a sensitive person and you try to treat these people as real people um, and not just like characters in a story that are easy to villainize and everything else, if you're, if you're thinking about as real people and, and maybe you see people in similar situations in your own life that you can plug in there and say, I understand that. Uh, when you think about that, it's difficult not to be moved with pity I mean, with Esau, you have a man who's characterized by poor choices and a rejection of wisdom. You see a man who desperately wants to do what he wants to do, prioritizing fleeting and momentary happiness over and against decisions of lasting value, while at the same time wanting everyone around him to make allowances for the necessity of his poor choices. What I mean, I'm talking about um, he sells his birthright uh, for a morsel of stew, or, uh, for a bowl of stew, and then, as uh, Pastor Kevin pointed out last week, he, he sells the birthright for a portion of stew, and then he... Pre- you know, he expects that everyone just understands that that was an impulse decision in the moment and don't hold him accountable to it and, uh, later on. And so uh, he expects that everyone around will make allowances for the necessity of his poor choices, affirm his decision, participate in a collective illusion that his actions aren't actually a great source of pain for both him and those who love him. So uh, when you think about the life of Esau, it really is tragic in a lot of ways. And yet the, the testimony is of his life is clear. He's a... He's a profane man who rejected his birthright for a pot of stew. He multiplied wives after the ungodly pattern of Lamech. Not only does he multiply wives, but he takes wives from the enemies of the people of God. And these wives serve to be a great source of misery for his family. Uh, To make matters worse, he seems to be so self-absorbed and oblivious to all this. Uh, When you think about Esau, you remember Abraham said to the servant, it is very important you don't take a wife from the wife of the Canaanites. I'm not at all convinced that I, that, that wasn't passed along to Esau at some point. So um, 
but the route is he, he seems to be so self-absorbed that he's oblivious to the fact that his wives have become a significant trial for his parents. So what is it? how does it start here? Now Esau uh, saw that he blessed Isaac and Jacob, and Jacob obeyed his father and mother. And then it says, when Esau, when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, it's like, you're just now figuring that out? <laughs> They're saying that they're making their life so miserable that they don't want to be alive anymore. And you are oblivious to that. You can't you're so self-absorbed. You can't even look and see what he's what they're doing. Uh, But now he's just now um, doing it, uh, so to speak. But um, uh, he seems so self-absorbed that he's oblivious to the fact that his wife has become a significant trial to his parents, only noticing their discomfort after they implore uh, Jacob to not take a wife from the daughters of Canaanites. So what does he do? What does he do? He's going to. He's going to try to redeem himself once again. Another attempt to redeem himself from his bad choices. And he's going to take a third wife. As if the, uh, the second one wasn't a bad choice. As if the first one wasn't a bad choice. So what do we learn from the tragic life of Esau? We've, also, we've already learned this. So I'm not going to elaborate on it. But poor choices, poor marriage choices can have dramatic effects on the family. We've already learned that. We've already seen that. The Bible repeatedly uh, speaks about that in a wide variety of ways and talks about the importance of making a wise decision. So there's that. Uh, We've also learned, I I think, from his life that self-centered people or people who are primarily driven by what makes them happy personally. So it's just what's going to make me happy? What do I want personally? Uh, Self-centered people are typically driven by what makes them happy. They they generally reject wise counsel. They're often oblivious to the suffering their actions cause others, and they generally expect that others will approve, support, and validate their bad choices. And so when you think about uh, the life of Esau, that's what you see in him. You see a person who just seems to be oblivious to the damages bad choices are causing to others, and, and, and he wants everyone just to give him a free pass and and not hold him accountable to his decisions and give him whatever he wants, uh, despite the fact that, you know, some of his choices are really not all that great. Now, a third, I think the fact that what you learn is the fact that a person feels bad about their actions, experiences tearful remorse. You know how he begs, um, begs his father, bless me, isn't there a blessing with me? Uh, uh, the Bible looks back on that and says that there was no place found for repentance for Esau, even though he sought it diligently with tears. And so the reality is that the fact that a person feels bad about their actions, experiences tearful of remorse, even makes efforts at reform, are no sure indication that a person's redeemed. When you look at someone like Esau, you see all those things. He feels bad for the things he did. He, he, he uh, is tearful about it, so he, he's experiencing sorrow. It seems like he's making efforts at reform. Oh, well, now, now I realize that my two terrorist wives are making your lives miserable, so I'll try to get one that you like and, and everything else. So, the, the, you know, I'll... Because that's a good answer. Three is better than two, apparently. <laughs> oh, man. Um, the point, though, is the, the fact that a person feels bad about their actions, experiences tearful remorse, or makes effort at reform, that's no sure indication that a person's redeemed. You know, Judas felt bad for his actions, too. What he did, he felt so bad, he felt so sor- sorrowful for redeeming. He tried to, what did he do? He tried to give the money back? What did they say? What is this to us? You see to it, right? Uh, what's done is done. Uh, what did he do? He killed himself. I, I've talked to, look, I've talked to so many people. I've talked to so many Christians. And so many Christians seem to think that their child can be living in unrepentant, open rebellion against God for a long period of time, for years and years and years and years and years and years and years of their life living in open, unrepentant, unrepentant rebellion against God. And I, and I say, well, what do you think about that? You know? And it's like, well, I think they're backsliding. Well, why are they backsliding? I mean, that's a long time to... I mean, that, 
That's a lot of backsliding. Uh, I mean, years and years and years of backsliding. That, that, that sounds like going the opposite way, but whatever. Why, why do you think they're backsliding? Well, they, they seem to feel bad, you know, sometimes. And if that's the standard, you, you, have, to, you, you have to understand. God's written this moral law in our hearts. When we sin, what do we do? We feel bad. Christians feel bad. Non-Christians feel bad. Right? There's different types of sorrow. There's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance uh, without regret. And there's worldly sorrow that leads to death. The fact that there's sorrow is no indication of anything, as this kind of passage shows. Um, And then I think a fourth thing. Attempts to fix bad choices can often... I mean, if you don't take the path to fixing bad choices that God gives you, Oftentimes, what you do is you just make matters worse. And so what, what should he be done in that situation? He realizes that his wives are making a life miserable for his family. What does he do? Maybe try to lead them better. You think about that? Instead of just, like, instead of just getting another one, <laughs> maybe try to be a better uh, spiritual leader in their life. Maybe try to get everyone together and and... Be reconciled. Pursue reconciliation. Maybe try to be a peacemaker in this situation. Maybe, uh, you know, rebuke your wife for their bad behavior that's causing uh, your family such misery. You you think about that? Uh, You you know, the the reality, though, is that oftentimes um, attempts to fix bad choices can often just make matters a whole lot worse. But then, I mean, the reality is when you look at the life of Esau, you see that um, really... um, you know, there, there, are, um, there are decisions in life that really do have uh, dramatic, long-term consequences to both yourself and everyone around you. And, and, and the reality is um, Esau didn't know what he was giving up when he, when he gave up his birthright. He didn't know what he was doing. Uh, but then that's the way that sin works. It, sin is insane. It's irrational. And, and, and if, we, if we could look and we could see... Um, the end of the story, so to speak. You know, if you, before you commit the sin, if you if you look and you you see, here's all the things that are going to happen as a result of it. You knew all the ways in which it would affect uh, you and others around you. Uh, I wonder at times if we would make uh, choices any different. But then the reality is, we're, sin is so stubborn that sometimes you just don't care. You know, and what we need is we need God to change our hearts. We need God to Give us grace and, and, and help us to love him more than we love our sin. Because on our own, we're going to be the kind of people who love sin much more than we love God. And so there's that too. Now, Jacob's ladder. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and he stayed there at night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. And he dreamed. There's some discussion there. I'm not going to elaborate on that, but there's some discussion if it's he's putting stones around his head as a form of protection or if he's laying on a, a pillow, a stone pillow. And if he's laying on a stone pillow, you have my sympathies, man. Um, but uh, I don't know about that. But uh, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. 
Uh, the land in which you lie I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Uh, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord's in this place, and I did not know it. Uh, and he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Now, uh, when you think about this story, one of the things you, when you're doing Bible study, you have to remember is that when you're, you're trying to interpret a, a story in the Bible, one of the things to realize is that there's layers of context within the Bible. So there's the immediate context. There's context of the book. Then there's a whole Bible context. And you have to think through how the immediate context influences what you're reading. And in the broader context, the context of the book, how does this fit within the story of the book as a whole? And then you have to think, well, how does it fit with the whole thing? And that's typically like the layers of interpretation that you're trying to think through in general. And, and it becomes obvious when you're reading a passage like this. If you understand the book of Genesis then and you're looking at the story, it can be kind of a weird story if it's just on its own and you don't really know what the context is. But then... When you're reading the rest of the book of the Genesis, one of the things that you're going to realize is it's often helpful um, just in general, and I'm going to show you how it works in Genesis. It's often helpful just to, if you come to a passage, I don't know what to do with it, take a step back and ask what's happened so far. Okay? So what's happened so far in the book of Genesis? Creation. Right? God creates the world. He makes man upright. What does man do? He makes man upright in his own image. Man immediately falls into sin. What happens? Man is cast out of Eden, away from the presence of the Lord. What happens then? God puts an a angel with a flaming sword to guard the way back to Eden. What does that communicate to you? Access to God is gone, right? So what is it? Sin separates you from God. Access to God is lost. Like Instead of walking and talking with God in the cool of the day, what happens? There's no more of that, right? No more of that. Their access to God is... God was with them in the garden. Now they sin. They're cast out. They can't go back because the angel, the family sword, everything else. What happens later in the book of Genesis? What happens later? What do they try to do after the flood? Build a tower? Reaches up to heaven? Why are they trying to do that? They think that they can get access to God back through their building accomplishments. What does God say? Well, I'm gonna, it doesn't work that way. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm going to confound your languages, but uh, but then he does acknowledge it's impressive the feat that they uh, uh, that they accomplished on their own behalf, uh, as far as that goes. And you know, if we leave them alone, there's no telling what they'll be able to do. Um, but I'm going to confound their language. What does that teach you? Access to God isn't gained through human effort, right? Access to God isn't going to be. You can't fix the problem that way. You can't build your tower up to heaven and get to him that way. What happens here? So he came to a certain place. He stayed there at night. Verse 11, right? What does he see? Verse 12. And he dreamed. Behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the, God, uh, behold, uh, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And what does he conclude from this? From this place? Well, heaven and earth meet here. That's what he's saying. Heaven and earth meet here. So it's kind of, in a certain sense, what you're seeing here is a reverse of Babel. They tried to get their way to God. What does God do? He takes the initiative and 
bridges the gap between heaven and earth to Jacob individually, right? So when they tried to do it themselves, they couldn't. God scattered them. You can't get to God that way. What happens here? God chooses Abraham out of the earth of the Chaldeans. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply you. He does that. Why? Because Abraham's such a righteous guy. No, he does it by grace, apart from anything that Abraham had done. Abraham formerly was a pagan idolater. That's how it worked. So here's what's happening. God is taking the initiative to save for himself a particular people, and he's revealing himself to this particular people. And one of the things that you're meant to learn from a story like this is that access to God is not going to be found through the things that you do, but through the, the God who made you taking the first step in order to bridge the gap between you and him. So God takes the initiative. Access to God is restored. And what God tells Jacob is, I'm not just going to be the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. I'm going to be your God. God of Jacob, right? So when you read through the rest of the Bible, what you're going to find over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again is that they're going to look back on this and they're going to say, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob is the God I serve. Well, God is, this is the first time God's revealing himself to Jacob and he's, and he's reaffirming the promises that he made to Abraham and the promises that he made to Isaac. And he's saying that I'm going to bless you and I'm going to protect you uh, where you're going and I'm going to keep my promises. So he says, verse 15, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. Now, why would he say that to Jacob? Think about it. Jacob's going off to find a wife. There isn't any wives around where he's at. Going off to find a wife. What does God say to him? Ah, yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty that comes with going to find a wife, isn't there? Uh, Leaving the place where you're at, going and finding a woman. Uh, you think he had a wise plan to do it? You think he had a wise plan to do it? You think he had all the resources to do it? You think that he had the money to do it? You think that it made sense for him to do it? Do you think that he had everything worked out? Uh, he's going on a trip, and he, he doesn't know how he's going to make it all happen. Uh, but why is he doing it? Well, because he knows that God has a plan to bless the world through his family and through him. And so he's going to be faithful to God, and he's going to go, and he's going to do this without having all the answers. Now, um, the, the reality is, Within that, here's his response. Verse 18. I I described it. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Uh, Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head, and he he set up a pillar and poured oil on top of it, and he called the name of the place Bethel. Uh, But the name of the city was Luz at first. And Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me, like he said, if God will be with me and keep me, and this way I go. And what does he say? And will give me bread? What did God say anything about that? God's saying what he's saying because he knows what Jacob is thinking. Do you understand? What is Jacob thinking? I'm going over here to find a wife. I don't have a good plan to do it. I don't have the money to do it. I don't have the means to do it. God's calling me to do something that I don't know how to do. (laughs) I don't have a good plan to do it, but I'll do it and I'll be faithful. What do you think he's worried about? I don't have any bread to eat. I don't have any clothing to wear. Clothing's going to run out. Bread's going to run out. I don't know how I'm going to provide for a wife. I don't know how how I'm going to do this. Going out on my own, doing all this thing, just try to be faithful to God. What does God say? What did God say to, to the person who was thinking these things? What did God say to the person who was thinking these things before? He said, Behold, I'm with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. So you have a vision. Heaven and earth meet. Angels of God are ascending and descending. You have a stairway to heaven. Make Led Zeppelin happy, apparently. Uh, 
you, you have a stairway to heaven. Access to God is met. Uh, heaven and earth. There's, there's access to God. God reveals himself to Jacob and he says, I'm going to take care of you. Don't worry. You don't have to worry about anything. Uh, you may not know how this is all going to work. You may not know how it's all going to work out. You don't have a good plan. I'm not asking you to. I'm asking you to be faithful and trust me. Uh, what does Jacob say? If, uh, verse 19, or verse 20. If God will be with me and will keep me, as he says, give me the bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I may accomplish this objective, which, I mean, you know, takes him 14 years to get two women. So there's that. Uh, and, and, to, and then he comes back later. Uh, if, if he will come again to my father's house in peace, the Lord shall be my God. And the stone which I have set up as a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I'll give a full tenth to you. So what, what do we learn from this? I think we learn a couple. We learn a lot of things. But one of the things that we learn is the discipline of thanksgiving. You know, when you look at the lives of the patriarchs, one of the things that you realize, and just um, Old Testament um, characters in general, one of the things that you realize is that there were a lot of rituals and a lot of ceremonies and a lot of uh, things uh, that they did that would remind them of God's mighty acts in history. Um, so, you know, Jacob sets up a pillar in part why? So he can remember what the Lord God had done for him. God met with me here and he promised, he made certain promises to me, not just to Abraham and to Isaac, to me, not just, not just, I'm not just taking secondhand word for it, to me. He has a plan for me. Um, and I want to remember this plan and I'm going to name this place the house of God because like, this is where I met with God, um, and, you know, when you think about what happens in the New Testament, the New Testament looks back on this event, and you see John 51. Nathaniel's amazed that Jesus knows what he was doing under the fig tree, and Jesus says, you'll see greater things than these. Uh, you're looking back, you're going to see uh, greater things than these. And so John 151, he says, um, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open, and the angels of God descending and descending on the Son of Man. What he's making reference back to Jacob's ladder, and what he's saying is that I'm going to be the temple of God. I'm going to be the house of God. Just like Jacob named this pillar the house of God because he met with God there and access to God was restored to him there. One of the things that you need to realize is I'm going to be the temple of God. And if you want to meet with God, you have to come through me. And I have a plan to bless the world through me. And so ultimately, the plan started by blessing the world through this line of people. But now it's going to be blessed in Christ. And so uh, what, what I'm saying is, some of the things that we can learn from this is that there is a discipline of thanksgiving where you, you don't just overlook all the God's mighty acts uh, of, of history. I mean, part of what we do when we think about reading through the Bible is we think about these stories. They're, they're not just their stories. They're my stories. The same God who made the promises to these people, he made these promises. He made promises to me. And if he's faithful to bring the, the Israelites out of the promised land with all the uncertainty and everything else, he can help me. <laughs> So when you think about that, there, there is a discipline to Thanksgiving in your life. And it's often by trying to set up things in your life, uh, practically set up things in your life. that are going to help you to remember God's faithfulness in the past. And so that you, you, if you can keep on remembering his faithfulness in the past, you look forward and you say he's going to continue to do what he did uh, to me. Not just simply in my life, but also as I read through the scripture and I see all the other times he was faithful in the scripture too. So there's a discipline of Thanksgiving there that's related to the pillar and stone and everything else. And I won't go on, on about some of the details related to um, how that connects later with idolatry in the future and everything else, but, uh, or the Samaritans, but we must move on. But, but I think one of the primary things we see with, with this kind of passage is we must deal with God personally, too. So you can't have the kind of faith that it's just going to be your parents' faith or your grandparents' faith 
Um, each one of us has to deal with God personally. And God had a plan to restore the world, to bless the world. Access to God would be restored through the fulfillment of his specific promises to the Israelites. And today he has a plan to bless the world through the Great Commission to the church. And when we think about that, one of the things we realize is that um, none of us are going to get into heaven simply by the good works that we do. We're not going to be able to restore access to God in that way. But each person is going to have to, if they are going to be reconciled to God, they're going to have to repent of their sins and believe believe the good news and put their faith and trust in Christ uh, personally. And and, and there's a lot that we can learn from with this. Uh, But whatever you learn from it with this is, I think you think about the passage as a whole. God does have two corporate commands. Fill the place up with people. Fill the place up with converts. Fill the world up with people. Fill the world up with context. Those are the two corporate commands that give shape to the Bible. Uh, in the midst of that, he does have a plan to bless the world through the advancement of the gospel now, uh, the good news. Uh, and this was all uh, preparation for that and, and a wide variety of things. And, and, and really, when you think about the Christian life, it really isn't an individualistic Christian life where it's just me and God. And uh, my life has no bare, uh, correlation to those around me or the people that love me and care about me and uh, family. There's uh, connections with that. Uh, uh, God has a plan not just to save individual con- converts, but to uh, save people, you know, form families in society, form communities. Uh, there's connections at every single point and, and form churches. <laughs> uh, the Great Commission is a church uh, planting strategy. It's not just an individual con- contact. Uh, and so a lot of these things overlap in a passage like this. And there's so much more that we can say about it, but we will leave that for another time. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunities that we do have to come and to think about you and to think about your will for the world and to think about your purposes for us individually. Lord, we uh, know that you are a good God who delights to save men. Uh, We know that you haven't left us in the dark about the things that are pleasing to you, but you've given us much instruction on on, uh, how to live lives that are honoring and glorifying to you. We thank you for your words that you have given to us. I pray that you would help us to think clearly about those words and to be individuals who seek to honor you in all of our ways. Uh, we thank you for all you do. In your son's name I pray. Amen. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.